You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am Kathy Biasa, your host, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. It has been estimated that as many as 50% of all cardiac deaths due to disease in the heart's vessels occur in people with no prior history or symptoms of heart disease. This is outstanding at this day and age that still this number is so high. And to try and get into the prevention space of of heart disease is what we are trying to put forth to you today with our guest, Dr. Michael Twyman. Dr. Twyman is a board certified cardiologist who focuses on the prevention and early detection of heart disease. Dr. Twyman completed his cardiovascular training at St. Louis University after he completed a four-year active duty tour as an internist at Naval Hospital Beaufort. He has been in private practice since 2012, and heart attack prevention is his passion. He utilizes the best of conventional medicine, integrative and functional medicine, quantum medicine and biohacking to get to the root cause of the patient's cardiovascular issues. This is just a great, great topic to listen to. Um, And prevention starts very early as you will come to understand after we're talking or while we're talking with Dr. Twyman. We talk about key testing for cardiovascular health why um, your prevention path to cardiovascular health starts early in life, key lifestyle factors for improving cardiovascular health. We talk about nitric oxide. We talk about endothelial health. So many interesting and informative things come out of this conversation. It's something that we all need to listen to. I hope you do stay tuned with us, and we'll be back in just a few minutes to talk with Dr. Michael Twyman. About to give up because I heard you say there's gonna be brighter days. There's gonna be brighter days. I won't stop, I'll keep my head up. No, I'm not here to stay. There's gonna be brighter days. There's gonna be brighter days. I just might bend, but I won't break. As long as I can see your face.
Are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show has been taped, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all of those locations. Dr. Twyman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Really interesting topic we're going to get into um, now. Maybe give us a bit of a background of who you are, where you were, and why you're here now. Because it's, uh, you know, preventative cardiovascular healthcare is not something you hear a lot about. Sure. I'm a board-certified cardiologist, been doing medicine for 20 years, and just got really interested in the prevention side of thing about 10 years ago, and then stumbled upon functional medicine and later quantum biology and Three years ago, decided to launch my own practice where all I focus on is the early detection of subclinical atherosclerosis. So I try to help people not have their first heart attack or stroke. Interesting. And how do you meld in with the medical fields? Because obviously you're doing things a lot differently. Um, was it a challenge for you to take on the preventative side? Yes and no. I mean, it was just being very curious about you know, why did the same patients keep coming back to the hospital with events? I you know, was an invasive cardiologist for many years and hundreds, if not thousands of heart catheterizations. And it was very rewarding to treat people when they're very sick, but I wanted to figure out why did the same people keep coming back? You know, we had great medications and great procedures, but if maybe we had access to them 10 years prior to that and really looked at earlier markers of atherosclerosis, maybe they wouldn't have ended up in that acute intervention. So most of my colleagues, they didn't really mind that I was working on this. I wasn't really competing against them in their field. So they just let me do what I need to do. Now, are you still doing surgery? Are you still in the medical space? Or have you completely flipped? Um, I'm not rounding in hospitals for the past three years. So I'm just outpatient focused at this time. Now, would you say that most of your client base would be male, female, 
Have you noticed a change? It's approximately 55% male, um, and it's a little bit younger than a traditional cardiology practice. In a traditional cardiology practice, most patients tend to be over the age of 65. I think my average age is probably about 55. Um, I usually tell people, I want to get to you 10 years before your parents start having any issues, if that's the reason you're coming to see me. But yeah, I see patients you know, down to 18 years old, and I think my oldest patient right now is probably 88 years old. So is this where you're getting your patient um, group from? Are they are they siblings? Are they children of people that have had cardiac history or events? A lot of our patients come into us that way is that we see one of their family members and they're you know interested in getting to a root cause of anything that could be driving plaque formation in themselves. So their spouses, their kids, um, we often will screen them up as well. It's interesting. You know, I have in our family, we have a familial history with cholesterol. Um, and so that's what has prompted me. You know, I was getting stress tests probably even later than what you would like at the age of around 35. Um, how do you get the word out to people, though, that prevention is really where it's at? And the other issue is that you really want from, you know, from what I've been reading about you and other uh, doctors in your space, prevention starts quite early, doesn't it? Correct. Atherosclerosis can start in your teens and 20s. It starts with something called endothelial dysfunction. The endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. It's one cell thick. And if you took out all your endothelium from your 60,000 miles of blood vessels, it would cover the surface area of six tennis courts. So something goes wrong with this endothelial lining first, then the plaque starts building up. And it's generally not until you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s that you start having clinical events. You start having heart attacks, strokes, requiring stents, bypass surgery. And you'd mentioned a stress test. Now, a stress test is a good test if somebody's having symptoms, if they're having chest pain, chest tightness with activity, shortness of breath with activity or exercise intolerance. A stress test can be utilized to try to discover, is it an ischemic etiology? Is there a lack of blood flow through one of the heart arteries that's causing those symptoms? But just passing a stress test does not necessarily mean you don't have plaque in the arteries. Because unfortunately, by the time you fail stress test, you're really late to the game. You generally have to have a 70% stenosis or blockage in one of your arteries before the stress test will be abnormal. What's the symptomology then? Why would a 20-year-old go to you just because they're really on the ball? They'd had to be very on the ball if they're 20 years old. Usually it's going to be people in the mid-30s and above because their the mom, dad, their uncle had a heart attack you know, at 48 years old and they said, I don't want to go down that same pathway. Um, you know, with the advent of social media and podcasting, there's a lot of biohackers, health optimizers that can stumble upon the work of, you know, some of the people that I follow as well. And they're just more interested in, you know, taking a holistic approach and looking at plaque way before they have symptoms. Now, plaque is, you know, I think what what the general population would be, would understand if plaque is a buildup of cholesterol. It's a very simplified uh, way of looking at it. And I think we get that simplified version because that's what we're told. You know, we've got HDL and LDL and it's actually HDL cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. We're dealing with lipoproteins and all these other things that really aren't given to the general masses as the picture of what this is all about. Um, where is there the myth of cholesterol that you feel needs to be addressed? starting off with, you know, what is cholesterol? Cholesterol is a waxy lipid. It's like oil and vinegar. The waxy sterol is not going to be able to float in your liquid blood. So cholesterol is not the problem. That's the myth too, that there's such thing as good cholesterol or bad cholesterol. 
there's just cholesterol. And without cholesterol, you would not be alive. But cholesterol has to be transported through the blood vessels with something called a lipoprotein, a lipid protein carrier. Then give it almost as a cargo ship. That cargo ship is made in your liver. Cholesterol goes inside the cargo ship. Triglycerides, which are energy for your cells, goes inside. The fat-soluble vitamins and phospholipids, which are building blocks for cell, all go inside this cargo ship. The liver then pumps them out, sends them through the blood vessels to the tissues that need things. And then the lipoproteins have to ferry the things back to the liver as well. So the LDL particles tend to take things from the liver to the periphery. The HDL particles tend to pick things up, bring it back to the liver to help recycle it. So the numbers aren't necessarily, you know, I've got good HDL, I've got bad LDL. Um, they're not really the full picture, are they? Correct. And it's unfortunate that you can't simplify it down to that, you know, high HDL is always, or I, I should even say high HDL cholesterol is always good because HDL is much more about the functionality of it than it is the overall number of it. So the plaque is multifaceted, but there's always going to be an apolipoprotein B or ApoB containing particle that drops off its cholesterol in the artery wall. It starts with endothelial dysfunction. It leads to inflammation in the artery wall. And then these lipoproteins basically are like Trojan horses. They come into the artery wall, the immune system starts attacking them, and the cholesterol that was inside these lipoproteins gets retained in the artery wall. And that starts building up these fatty streaks in the artery wall sometimes as early as in your 20s, as I said earlier. And then later, those can continue to build up like a pimple inside the wall of the artery until one of those plaques becomes large enough that you either have symptoms or even more unfortunately, one of those plaques ruptures. Half the time somebody has a heart attack, they had no symptoms before one of these plaques actually ruptured. And the plaques will always have cholesterol inside of them, but cholesterol by itself isn't the only thing driving that plaque formation. Is it fair to say that if you have, you know, CBC is a, is a blood test that most we are all familiar with. If you have inflammation, uh, an inflammation number, a CRP number that's high, uh, is it fair to say we should be on the lookout for a buildup of plaque? Correct. You know, there's, you know, high sensitivity CRP is a good screening test to say, you know, you know, are you likely inflamed? Uh, you know, you want your immune system to turn on when you have an infection. You want your immune system turned on when you have an injury, but you don't want your immune system always turned on. The arteries are more likely to get damaged as the innocent bystanders when that happens. You know, sometimes I tell patients, you know, if you have a high sensitivity CRP that's elevated, it's you know contributing to a five alarm fire in your artery walls. And the cholesterol, I'm not gonna say it's a completely innocent bystander, but it's that damage inflamed cholesterol that's much more likely to build up bigger plaques in the artery wall. Is the cholesterol trying to reduce the inflammation or is the inflammation causing the cholesterol to change in its molecular form? And that's what's causing the damage. It's the inflammation damages the endothelial glycocalyx, which is a gel coat that lines the endothelium. And when that gel coat has been damaged, then the lipoproteins, which are the cargo ships, you know, they're supposed to just be zipping by the arteries and dropping all things at your muscles and other organs. They start sticking to that damaged endothelium, like Velcro essentially. And then that cholesterol, it's a repair molecule. You know, all your cells have it in their cell membranes. That cholesterol is trying to plug or patch up the damage, but it's kind of like a fireman on the scene that, you know, the fire is raging and then the fire trucks are getting damaged in the process. It's not the firemen or the fire trucks that are causing the fire per se, but they're contributing to the plaque formation. 
might be a good idea here at this point to go back and look at cholesterol. I, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of the estrogen thing and, you know, estrogen is bad. Cholesterol is bad. We need these. Uh, you can't live without cholesterol. I think you mentioned that at the beginning. What are the main functions of cholesterol in our body? There's multiple functions, but one of them is structural. Your cell membranes are made with cholesterol. You know, people tend to think of cells as being two-dimensional, but they're three-dimensional and the cells are communicating with each other. And inside the membranes of the cells, you know, there's different channels. So different nutrients can come into the cells. If you don't have cholesterol and you can't pass information into the cell or to other cells, you know, there's going to be disease. You know, cholesterol is also a precursor to your vitamin D your sex hormones, such as testosterone and estrogen. You also will make your bile acids with cholesterol. You need bile acids to be able to digest fats. So without cholesterol, you will not be alive. But people always get concerned about having high levels in their blood. It can be a problem. If you're developing atherosclerosis, you do want to consider ways to lowering those ApoB-containing particles. But cholesterol in your blood is not the same thing as the cholesterol in your cells, inside your red blood cells, or inside your brain. There's different pools of cholesterol. Now, okay, so when we're getting a blood test done, what cholesterol level are we looking at? Blood, I'm assuming. <laughs> so unfortunately, most people are just getting the traditional cholesterol panel, which will have a total cholesterol, an HDL cholesterol, a triglyceride level, and a calculated LDL cholesterol level. So they take all your lipoproteins, all the cargo ships, they put them in a tube, they spin them very fast, and it breaks all the cargo ships, all the cargo that's inside the cholesterol, the triglycerides, that all you know, basically floats down to the bottom based off of density. And they would just measure, well, how much of it is high density? How much of it is low density? So you don't necessarily need to know how much cholesterol is floating around in your blood. You need to know how many cargo ships are transporting it around the system. And those tests aren't readily given in the standard medical? Field. Not typically, but they're not that... Um, complex to get, you know, you need either an ApoB or apolipoprotein B that can encapsulate all the atherosclerotic uh, lipoproteins, or you can get an NMR, a nuclear medicine residence testing, which can look at the LDL particle count, the small LDL particles, the HDL particles. So you can get particle testing as, as well. But this isn't getting all of the cholesterol. So, you know, I, I talk to people and, you know, we, people that have to be on medications, I have to be on a statin myself. It's just, I have tried every way uh, possible. Um, and you get some doctors who want to drive cholesterol down to zero. And if they do, this isn't considering the other stores of cholesterol. Is it a worry when you get that number down very low? Generally, no. A, a newborn's ApoB is generally around 30. Um, you know, the average American is probably well north of 80. Um, that's kind of the bare minimum you probably want to see most people be is an ApoB of 80. You know, but I always talk about you know what are the arteries doing with that information. You know, when they you know stick a uh, you know a needle in your vein and suck out some blood, that's just a snapshot in time of what was floating around in your system. It doesn't necessarily tell you what's going on with your arteries. There's a propensity that if you have lots of ApoB particles, that there's more shots on goal, you may be developing plaque, but you have to actually go look at the arteries with 
non-invasive testing if people aren't symptomatic. And then if they're symptomatic, you have them do a stress test and potentially a coronary angiogram. So what is the arteries doing with those ApoB loads? If you're developing a lot of plaque in your arteries, then yes, you're going to be more aggressive at lowering the ApoB, likely with pharmacological agents. But if you have a calcium score of zero and no demonstrable plaque on other testing, then more likely lifestyle or supplementation is you know, the general initial course of action. And as with everything, as we're entering into the functional space, this area of cardiovascular health really stands out to me to be an area of individualization. And I'll take it again from a personal uh, standpoint. My triglycerides are very low. My apolipoprotein uh, B is very low. My cholesterol, my LDL cholesterol is through the roof. Um, and that's not generally the picture you see with someone who has this familial history of, of high cholesterol levels, is it? We have to approach everybody where they're at. Very much so. I mean, you know, population-based medicine is good to tell us about trends, but you want to be treating the person who's sitting in front of you. You know, a lot of the cardiovascular risk assessments, they're looking at, you know, not even the most important data, but they're looking at your HDLC, they're looking at your total cholesterol, your systolic blood pressure. But most of those calculators, the risk really is built into your age and your sex. And the lipids, they have a role, but you know, many of the risk calculators, you know, recommend deferring treatment unless you're over at a seven and a half percent risk of having a heart attack over 10 years. Well, you're going to miss 92.5% of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I should say you're not going to miss 92.5%, but you're going to miss those 7.5% of people who may actually be higher risk. So I'm a big proponent of test, don't guess, and actually look at what the arteries are doing. You know, how healthy is the endothelium? How much inflammation is in the arteries? How much soft plaque or hard plaque are in the arteries? Then that can help guide how aggressive to be with lipid lowering therapies. And, and it's it's important for people like you to get the word out because it's built into the medical system that we, you know, there's really no need to test until you're a bit older. I I don't know any, um, you know, I've asked my kids to go get some just uh, a CBC done because of my history. It's not built into the system. And to prevent incidences in your 50s, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you really have to be on top of this. At an, it, sh it should be part of a standard physical, shouldn't it? Ideally, yes. And you know, this is why I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience is that maybe this is the first time you're hearing something about apolipoprotein B or CT coronary calcium scores or carotid intimal medial thickness tests. It's just that if this information piques your interest, then you can dive deeper down the rabbit hole and know that there's different ways that you can be assessed to tell you what is your true risk of having a heart attack. Because it is unfortunate that most patients are not going to go seek a cardiologist's opinion unless they're you know, having chest pain when they do activity, or they got a really strong family history. Maybe they make it through somebody's door. But you know, atherosclerosis starts so early. You have so many decades to intervene on it before you have to you know, really start throwing the kitchen sink at people. Now, can atherosclerosis be reversed? Short answer is yes. Yeah. You know, Atherosclerosis is extremely common. If you live long enough, you're probably going to develop some degree of atherosclerosis, but you don't necessarily have to have an event, meaning a heart attack, a stroke, require a stent or bypass surgery. That's the number one goal is don't have events. So that's what I often tell patients is first, do whatever testing is necessary to figure out what is your plaque burden. And then much like a large ship in the ocean, you first want to slow it down so that the plaque stops building up. And often you can get the plaque to stop 
you know, progressing. And then over time with the right supplementation, lifestyle interventions, pharmacological interventions, the plaques can potentially start regressing. Is that new? No, it just, you just have to go looking for it. I mean, even traditional cardiologists know from the, the, you know, the prior Jupiter trial that they were using resuvastatin in patients who, you know, had high sensitivity CRPs and lipids, and they were doing intravascular ultrasounds. So it's an invasive procedure and they were showing carotid plaque regression using resuvastatin. So it's even in the conventional cardiology literature. That's very interesting. We're going to take a break here. Um, when we come back, I want to tee up this for you, everybody. The proper testing or the testing recommended by Dr. Twyman here, and then we're going to get into prevention and what we can do in our daily lifestyles to help encourage the best cardiovascular health that we can possibly have. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
just breathe. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Michael Twyman. Dr. Twyman, um, rank in order of what you would like to see as the key tests in a preventative palate. Sure. So I always break it down into two buckets. One is biochemicals. So this is lab work and we'll go through that. And the second is going to be more functional and structural. What are the arteries doing? So start with the labs. So yes, I'm going to want to look at a traditional lipid panel because it gives me a couple pieces of information. It's going to tell me, does that person likely have familial hyperlipidemia? They have a genetic issue that their lipids are really abnormal. And then the HDL cholesterol and triglyceride ratio can give you a window into, is it likely that person is insulin resistant? Because insulin resistance is number one of the biggest things that drives early atherosclerosis. I'm going to be looking at the NMR lipoprotein, so the LDL particle count. I will also look at apolipoprotein B, because if you only had one lipid metric to look at, I personally would only look at ApoB because that is really the, the main driver of atherosclerosis. Uh, and then in 20% of the population, LPLA is elevated. This is like an LDL particle, but it has a another protein on the outside of it that makes it a little bit easier for it to stick to the endothelial glycocalyx and damage it. 20% of the population has it, and it's the number one genetically inherited lipoprotein that puts people at increased risk of having early disease. And you only have to check it once. And there's even some guidelines that are recommending people you know, at age 18 or younger should have it checked because if it's elevated, they get put into a high-risk category that they should probably be monitored a little bit more closely. And that's APOA1? That's lipoprotein A or lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein LPA. little a, and that's a genetic. It doesn't fluctuate. Doesn't fluctuate much. Um, and there's unfortunately no great treatments for it at this time. There's drugs in development that are going to be working on it. But right now it's, you know, if you have it, you just have to, you know, look at what's going on with the arteries and then try to treat all the other risk factors. We'll also be looking at multiple markers of inflammation. So high sensitivity CRP, lipo, it's called LPPLA2 or PLAC. It's a marker of inflammation that's in the intima or the inner lining of the artery wall. Myeloperoxidase, if myeloperoxidase is elevated, that person likely has dysfunctional HDL and HDL is not really doing reverse cholesterol transport. Oxidized LDL, is your LDL rusting from the inside? If it is, it's more likely to get stuck in your arteries. There's markers of endothelial health. The endothelium begins your inner lining of arteries. One of the compounds that releases is nitric oxide. If you have healthy nitric oxide levels, things don't stick to your arteries and you'll tend to have normal blood pressure. There's labs such as ADMA and SDMA, stands for asymmetric dimethylarginine and symmetric dimethylarginine. If those are elevated, you're very likely to have low nitric oxide levels and an increased risk of having high blood pressure, plaque building up in your arteries. There are other markers of your metabolism, such as homocysteine, uric acid, and of course, you can be checking fasting insulin levels, hemoglobin A1Cs to have an idea, is this person likely insulin resistant? And then depending on their context, there's a multitude of genetic markers you can look at in some individuals. So that's just the lab side of things. Mm -hmm. Again, that's just a snapshot in time. What were you born with? And epigenetically, what's going on in your system right now? 
Second thing I would do is look at the arteries themselves. So people under the age of 40, they don't necessarily need the uh, more aggressive testing, but under 40, typically recommend tests that look at endothelial function. So there's a device called the Max Pulse, looks at pulse wave velocity. So the artery should be very elastic. The artery should be like an accordion. The blood comes in them, they expand, they contract. If the arteries are more like a lead pipe and they're stiff, they likely have some evidence of endothelial dysfunction. There's a device called the EndoPET. It's a little bit more challenging to get access to this type of device, but this device tells you to the percentage, how much can your arteries dilate when there's a vessel stressor on them? So it tells you how much nitric oxide your arteries can release. After that test, if you're under 40, typically we'll recommend a carotid intimomedial thickness scan. It's an ultrasound of the artery on the side of your neck. Those arteries are kind of a window into what's going on in your 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Your carotid should be less than half a millimeter thick in the intima. If it's greater than that, that means there's inflammation in the artery wall. The more inflammation, the more likely plaque will build up in your artery. You can also see soft plaque building up in the carotid arteries as well if it's present. And if you have plaque building up in the carotid arteries, it's very likely to have plaque building up in your coronary arteries as well. The CIMT scan will also give you a vascular age. So if you're biologically 50 years old, but your arterial age is 70 years old, well, it was Dr. Thomas Sintem from the 1600s who had a saying, a man is as old as his arteries. So you can look very fit and young on the outside, but your arteries are, you know, been fighting a five alarm fire for many years and you're aging much faster from the inside out. So those are testing I would start with people under the age of 40. Over the age of 40, depending on some factors, typically you're gonna start with a test called the CT coronary calcium score. It's a low dose radiation scan of your coronary arteries. It's kind of like a mammogram for the heart. Calcium is supposed to be in your bones. It's not supposed to be in your arteries. Calcium in your arteries indicates that there's been break-ins to your arteries and plaque is starting to build up. The body tries to heal that plaque by putting a basically a scab over it, scars it down. But over time, that scab will start to calcify. The calcium is a marker that there's plaque in the artery. More calcium, more plaque in the artery. A perfect calcium score test should be zero. But unfortunately, six out of 10 people who do the scan over the age of 40 are going to have a score above that. The higher the calcium score, the higher the risk of having an event, a heart attack, a stroke, and such. And what is high on that calcium score? Great question. Over 400 is considered high. Over 1,000 is very high. Um, the highest score I've seen to date is 7,700. Um, that person's currently getting worked up. The previous high score I had seen was a gentleman's score is well over 3,500. He was only 48 years old. When we did a coronary angiogram on him, he had severe multivessel coronary artery disease, including left main coronary artery disease. And this gentleman had multivessel bypass surgery at age 48. And he didn't have a lot of symptoms before he went to go get that scan done. It's very interesting. What about particle size? This is something that I think when we were, um, it, it, the, the cusp of things changing with the testing, it was focused on particle size. That really hasn't been mentioned here. Is that just, is that in the past now? It's not necessarily in the past, but it's not as important as probably initially thought. So what you're speaking of is that the particles come in all different sizes and have different compositions in them. So there's a different amount of cholesterol, triglycerides, phospholipids inside each particle. Now, it used to be thought more of, think of in a way, the analogy of like your artery wall is a tennis net. If you have a big fluffy LDL particle, it's not going to get through the tennis net. But if you have a real small LDL particle, that's the size of a golf ball, that golf ball is going to have a little bit easier chance getting into the artery wall. And while that's a little bit true, it tends to be the people who have a lot of small LDL particles 
are going to just have a lot of LDL particles in general. So it's the total number of particles that actually predict risk. But that being said, the smaller particles, they have a longer resonance time. They tend to hang out in the system for five days before they get cleared. And the longer time that they spend around in the blood plasma, the more chances they're going to get oxidized. You know, you're continuously breathing oxygen throughout the day to be able to make energy in your mitochondria. If those lipoproteins get oxidized, they're now seen as foreign to the body. Your body basically thinks it's bacteria and mounts an immune response towards all that oxidized cholesterol particles. So the small particles play a role, but typically if you have a lot of small LDL particles, it's one of two things. You're either insulin resistant, which other markers can kind of point towards that as well, or it's genetically baked into you that you make a lot of small particles. Interesting. Okay, so let's get on to the fun stuff. Um, prevention. And I don't know if this is a silly question to ask or not, but is prevention different at different ages? Not necessarily. It's just more of the, you know, how hard you got to pull on certain levers is the way I kind of think about it. You know, kind of break it down into the three buckets again, you know, how healthy is the endothelium? The endothelium is the first you know, line of defense. If the endothelium gets damaged, you're on the pathway to potentially building a plaque. But just because you built up plaque and maybe even required a stent in the past, doesn't mean you can't regain function in your endothelium. So doing the testing that looks at your current function of endothelial health, you know, how can you support the body's ability to make nitric oxide? Because that's a good metric of how healthy the endothelium would be. Then how much inflammation is in the system? You know, if you recently had an infection, no, it's not worthwhile to do blood work. But if you're in your kind of normal state of health, get an advanced blood work panel done and see how much inflammation is in your system, especially the cardiovascular inflammatory markers. If your body's inflamed, your arteries are on fire, you got to figure out what's driving that and pull hard on the lever and cool down the inflammation. And then the third bucket is the ApoB containing particles. You know, the cholesterol by itself isn't the problem, but if those ApoB particles are getting stuck in the artery walls and dumping its cargo, you're going to want to lower your ApoB count. Now, your levels are going to depend a little bit on how much plaque is in the arteries, but most people should probably be shooting for an ApoB number 80 or less. So that's the kind of starting point. But then it really depends on, you know, what other uh, risk factors the patient has and what their goals are. Um, you know, I usually will sometimes talk about like a four-legged stool of cardiovascular health. You know, it's going to be your exercise, your nutrition, your stress management, and your sleep. And everybody wants to tend to focus on the exercise and the nutrition. I'm not telling people those aren't important. But if you don't manage your stress, and especially if you don't manage your sleep quality, it almost doesn't matter what you eat or how you exercise mm -hmm. because your body repairs itself while you sleep. And sleep is the key to longevity. Hmm. And, and oh man, it's just every space that we talk about in health, sleep is becoming more and more understood as the area. Um, I, with respect to nutrition, and again, this is something I wanted to uh, ask you because it's, it's out there and I hear it so often. Um, can you eat your way to high cholesterol? In certain instances, yes, but the majority of times, no. Um, you know, the cholesterol that you eat in your diet is going to come into your gut already esterified. So it has this little side chain on it. And for you know, lack of a better analogy, it's like a lock and key. That key is not going to fit in the locks in your intestine and pull it into your system. So the majority of the cholesterol that's floating around in your blood is cholesterol that your liver or the other cells actually made. Now, there are people who have issues with certain receptors in the gut that if they eat a certain high fat diet, or they just overindulge on you know carbohydrates more than their muscles can handle, they're going to do uh, de novo lipogenesis, they're going to make more fats in their liver from those carbohydrates, and they'll ultimately drive cholesterol production in the liver. 
So if you make more cholesterol, more fats in the liver, you got to make more lipoproteins, more cargo ships to carry that around the system. So I'm not saying it's not possible to raise your cholesterol with nutrition, but it's not the number one thing driving it. And most hmm. people. Okay. Um, and now back to the sleep thing. Uh, is there a circadian rhythm with attached to what, uh, this may be the wrong terminology, attached to heart health? Does our heart have a circadian rhythm um, that we should be in tuned with? That's an excellent question. And that's honestly where I actually start with patients, you know, for the ones that see me in the office, um, you know, I'm always wearing blue blocking glasses. My office is very circadian friendly, uh, you know, all natural lighting in these offices and have different photobiomodulation panels to kind of help, you know, light up the room if it's darker because of the weather. But I always start with circadian rhythms because your circadian rhythms dictate how you make your hormones and your neurotransmitters. There's a circadian rhythm to your blood pressure. Your blood pressure is supposed to start increasing, you know, between about 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. as cortisol starts to rise. So your blood pressure in the morning time is going to be generally higher than it is late in the evening time. There's a 24-hour blood pressure monitor people can wear to find out what their average blood pressure is, but will also assess, does your blood pressure appropriately dip at night in a circadian manner? Your blood pressure should drop at least 10 to 15% while you sleep. If it doesn't, that's a big risk factor for increasing your risk of heart attacks and strokes. So... You know, my nutrition plan for most people is pretty simple to begin with. And then I fine tune it based off of their lab work. It's eat a seasonally appropriate diet for where you physically live in the world. So if that food could grow in your environment, that's the time of year that you're supposed to eat that type of food. So if you're in a place where there's four seasons, fruits grow in the summertime in your environment, that's when you're supposed to eat it. If it's wintertime and fruits aren't growing, you're not evolved to eat at that time of year. So what could your great-grandparents have access to? That's your starting template of the food you should consider. And then from a circadian standpoint, you know, ideally you should be eating a meal within the first hour after sunrise and finishing, you know, shortly before or right after the sunset. So if it's daylight outside, that's your feeding window. Excellent. Um, I have, what's the question? Oh, yes. The question I had, I'm so, I'm so taken with what you're saying. I, I find it just so fascinating with respect to medication. Uh, I'm assuming that medication is part of, or can be part of a protocol for you. Um, and circadian rhythm. Do you look at the timing of people take their medication, um, in light of circadian rhythm and specifically I'm talking about hypertensive medication and, um, I read a study, and I, this is not definitely not my forte in my field, but I did read a study on circadian rhythm saying that 50% of heart attacks due to hypertension could be prevented if people took their medication before they went to sleep as opposed to when they wake up. First of all, does that make sense? And second of all, is the timing of, of cardiovascular medication important to you? That is a great question, and that's a very good insight. That's how I've been practicing medicine for many years, and I'm glad that it's starting to make it more into the mainstream. Now, they don't know exactly the time of day that every medication should be given, and I think that ultimately will come. You know, your chronobiology is going to dictate the time of day that the medicines should be coming into your system. Mm -hmm. They're starting to do that, and and I'm definitely not an expert in you know um, the current cancer treatments, but mm -hmm. they've discovered that there's certain chemo agents that should be giving in the morning versus the afternoon versus yeah. the evening time. But from a heart uh, medication standpoint, you know, the two classes I typically think about are the antiplatelet agents like aspirin and then the blood pressure medications. So for most people, I generally recommend that they take their aspirin if they're indicated to be on aspirin in the evening time around six o'clock, that helps the platelets 
you know, not stick together. Your blood is going to be stickiest essentially when cortisol starts to rise in the morning time. And you just want aspirin to be at a high level uh, when you're first awakening. And that's the same story with the blood pressure. That goes back to what I just talked about, the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor. That really helps you guide when you should be taking your medications. Now, if you're appropriately dipping, it may not matter as much a time of day to take it. But if you're not dipping, uh, meaning your blood pressure is not dropping while you sleep, you should probably be taking your medications 6 p.m., 7 p.m. So that's fully taking effect by 3 a.m. And so you don't have this big surge of blood pressure right upon, upon awakening. Okay, so a number of people are on statins. Um, is there a timing mechanism uh, involved with them or does that matter at all? Um, some of the other ones, you had to take them a little bit more in the evening time because they had a shorter half-life, but most of the ones that I particularly use have a much longer half-life. And so the time of day doesn't matter as much. Um, there's some of them like Resuvastan, it may have a half-life that lasts up to three to four days in some people. So if certain people have muscle symptoms with statins, you sometimes can kind of, um, do intermittent day dosing or, you know, twice a week dosing with that medicine and still get a, you know, somewhat of a benefit. Um, so you do have to kind of know the half-life can de determine if, you know, if you can do intermittent dosing like that. Okay. I'm going to throw this question in. I know we're getting close to the end here, but it was something that I've had in my mind. I've written down here, nitric oxide for endothelial health. You mentioned that before. Can we do anything in our lifestyle uh, habits to create more nitric oxide production? Sure. So things that can be done to help promote nitric oxide production are going to be exercise. When you exercise, you're increasing flow over the endothelial glycocalyx to the arteries going to the muscles and nitric oxide is going to be produced during that process. You know, eating green leafy vegetables and beets can help with it. Your body will convert the nitrates in those compounds ultimately into nitric oxide. Um, being out in the sunlight when UVA wavelengths of light are out. Now, it's a little bit challenging to know exactly when UVA is out unless you use a you know, app that can kind of tell you that, but a rough estimate is when you go outside and your skin starts feeling warm, that tends to be when UVA light is out in your environment. When the UVA light hits your skin, the blood vessels come to the surface and they liberate nitric oxide. So those are the three kind of big lifestyle ways to do it. But one thing is you don't want to be breaking your body's ability to make nitric oxide. So Whenever I get a chance to tell people, you know, unless your dentist tells you you must be on a mouthwash for some periodontal disease, you don't want to be using a lot of antiseptic mouthwash because that affects the nitrate reducing bacteria in your saliva. And then you're going to lose the benefit of eating a lot of the green leafy vegetables and beets. You won't be able to make that conversion happen because you need the bacteria to make the breakdown of the nitrates into nitrites. And the secondary thing is, you know, unless you've had a recent ulcer, you don't really want to be on an acid blocking medicine forever. Now, a few weeks, not a problem, but if you're on an acid blocking medicine, like one of the proton pump inhibitors, that can have issues with causing high blood pressure. That definitely has an effect on the way your body can make nitric oxide. So try to remove the offending agents if possible. But if not, then there are supplementation that can be utilized or medications that can help the body make more nitric oxide then. What about breathing through your nose? That's a good one. Um, Typically, most people will be mouth breathers, so that's going to be something that they're not fully used to. But if you do some deep nasal breathing and activate the sinus passages, um, you can liberate nitric oxide from the bacteria that are in your sinuses. But you almost have to do some humming type of uh, maneuver to kind of have it resonate. So uh, potentially just keep your mouth closed and do kind of a more of a deep humming will help boost the nitric oxide production. Excellent. Just excellent. We're really coming to the end here. And I hate to rush because I, I think I could talk about this forever. And I really want to thank you. I think it's such an important topic. And 
maybe of all all areas, this is probably one that's most confusing or at least understood. Um, and so thank you so much for what you do. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.